Welcome to China Insider, a podcast from Hudson Institute's China Center. It's Tuesday, October thirty-first, and we have three topics this week. The first is the death of former Chinese Premier Li Keqiang and the party's paranoia about public mourning and potential protests. The second is Wang Yi's visit with President Biden. And Miles' thoughts on the upcoming summit between Biden and Xi Jinping and the future of U.S.-China relations. Lastly, we discuss the recent clash between the Philippines and PRC over fishing rights in the South China Sea. Miles, how are you? Very good, Shan. Nice to be with you again. Wonderful. Yes. So for our first topic,、uh, former Premier Li Keqiang died suddenly of a heart attack this past Friday, and as citizens began to mourn, they were quickly censored on social media and told not to partake in any impromptu public demonstrations. Could you tell us why the party is so paranoid about the public mourning of a high-level official? Well, every time a senior、uh, leader died、uh, in China, it's、um, a big event, mostly because.、Uh, The incumbent leadership will always worry about the connection between the death of a symbolic figure and the political st- inst-、uh, stability there. Premier normally is a very important position in China because that's the、uh, the person normally talk about the bread and butter issues that the Chinese citizens worry about. So Li Keqiang is also a very peculiar、uh, figure in this case. He's most important. He's young. He's a lot younger than 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 others,、um, than even some of the people inside the、uh, Politburo、uh, at this moment. His health was never a a problem. So this generated enormous speculation about the real cause of his death because、uh, Li Keqiang poses、uh, a much bigger threat to Xi Jinping's supremacy when he's outside of the government、uh, than he's in because he can. Potentially, provide alternative to the Xi regime. So that's basically what's going on in people's mind. That's why the leadership is very paranoid. So parallels, whenever a high-level official and in particular premier passes away, parallels are drawn to the Tiananmen Square protests,、uh, which originally began as public mourning. Is there anything particularly worrying about Li's death or the circumstances in which it coincides?、Um, I guess another way to phrase this question would be: How legitimate is the party's fear of popular protest waves, like we saw with、uh, last year in response to zero COVID policies? Oh, the the fear is legitimate because the、uh, disenchantment, the anger, frustration、uh, against the party is real. I'm not sure whether people's、uh, action in memory of the deceased Chinese Communist Party leader is just because of the virtue of the particular person. Keep in mind, in China, is not. Uh, the content of the demonstration—it's the right of demonstration. Do you、mm-hmm. have the right to demonstrate or not? To mourn the the death of a senior communist leader is probably the only legitimate pretext you can use to register your、uh, political ideas, other than the、uh, mourning of the death of the、uh, senior leader. I mean, I can guarantee you, most people don't give a damn about the Li Keqiang himself, but、mm-hmm. they really do care about using occasions like this to register their frustration, their dis- their anger against the party. Why don't you tell us a bit more about?、Uh The position of premiership in the People's Republic of China. What does that role look like, and how does it compare to, say, Xi Jinping's role within the party? China is the communist、uh, dictatorship,、uh, which means that there is one party boss ruling at the very top, 
That's what we normally call the supreme leader. Premier is not the supreme leader. The supreme leader normally is the general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party and the chairman of the Politburo's Central Military Commission. Normally, the CMC and the party general secretary position are rolled into one person, as is now in the case of Xi Jinping. China's premier usually is the chief and willing executioner of the regime's terrible policies, and they all follow the orders of the supreme leaders. PRC, in its uh, some seven decades rule, uh, has had eight premiers altogether. Every single one of them belong to this category. Uh, let me just list them one by one. First of all, we all know Zhou Enlai. Zhou Enlai was the suave, uh, but consummate and ultimate enabler of evil. He was Mao's longtime fixer and a willing executioner. And he signed more death warrants for his fellow comrades that his master didn't like than any other PRC premiers. So, uh, but he's charming. He was suave, and he won the hearts of uh, of the uh, the people like Henry Kissinger and many other world leaders. But there is a much darker side of Zhou Enlai than 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 it appears. And following Zhou's death in 1976, and then there was not next uh, premier. His name is Hua Guofeng. Hua Guofeng was the transitional Maoist figure who aided Deng Xiaoping to supremacy through a palace coup in 1976. Hua Guofeng, however, ended up being purged by Deng Xiaoping himself, the very person that he promoted to supremacy. And Hua ended up spending years raising chickens in a collective and died a communist non-person uh, years later. Now, following Hua Guofeng is um, uh, the next premier, who is also kind of a, a tragic figure. Uh, his name is Zhao Ziyang. Zhao Ziyang, who was inspired by George Soros' promotion of the Hungarian model, under the Soviet economic system, when limited market mechanisms were allowed. But Zhao Ziyang himself never learned the political lessons from Eastern Europeans' struggle to get rid of communism. And tragically, uh, Zhao missed the chance in 1989 to become the Chinese people's hero during the Tiananmen Massacre. So Zhao uh, eventually died in agony after many years of house arrest by Deng Xiaoping himself. And then following Zhao Ziyang is Li Peng. Li Peng is known as the Li Peng the Terrible. He was the butcher of Tiananmen. He was a very notorious, whose family is enormously corrupt, um, even in today's uh, uh, time. Following Li Peng is Zhu Rongji under uh, Secretary General Jiang Zemin. Uh, Zhu Rongji was a f peculiar figure because he himself was a victim of Mao's political excesses in 1950s and 60s, yet he failed to advocate for changing the Mao system uh, completely. Uh, however, Zhu Rongji uh, got China into WTO, which really was the beginning of China's economic takeoff in recent decades. Following Zhu Rongji under uh, General Secretary Hu Jintao uh, was uh, Premier Wen Jiabao. Wen Jiabao was a uh, hardworking yet very weak and he's very greedy and and very corrupt. His family uh, are all billionaires, you know. Uh, uh, so it's says Wen Jiabao is still alive uh, today. And after Wen Jiabao, of course, is uh, Li Keqiang, uh, whom I'm going to talk a little bit uh, uh, later. 
Uh, and then uh, after Li Keqiang's uh, departure from the Politburo, then the current one is Li Chang. Li Chang has no apparent virtue, except that he's known as Mr. Shanghai Lockdown when he was a party chief in Shanghai during Xi Jinping's uh, national COVID-0 lockdowns. So there we are, eight of them. Now, we have to keep in mind that uh, Li Keqiang died last Friday, and uh, he was uh, um, first and foremost was a communist. And in the ob official obituary notice issued by the Chinese Communist Party's Central Committee, uh, which is published uh, uh, in all languages uh, by the Xinhua News Agency, and he Li Keqiang was extolled, and I quote, as an excellent Communist Party member a time-tested and loyal communist soldier, and an outstanding proletarian revolutionary, statesman and leader of the party and the state. Uh, but Li Keqiang, um, uh, also you have to understand, Li Keqiang endorsed every single move by Xi Jinping when he was premier, including Xi Jinping's Xinjiang policies against the Uyghurs, including Xi Jinping's national security law for Hong Kong, so this is not a, this is not a, like the George Washington of China or, or Thomas Jefferson. Now, far from it. In the obituary notice, you can see something also very peculiar. That is, in Li Keqiang's obituary, there are more mentions of Xi Jinping himself than Li Keqiang, the deceased. And the, the obituary focusing on Li's loyalty to the supreme leader. And also another thing that's very peculiar, in the obituary notice, which is very lengthy, Li Keqiang, uh, uh, something about him that's missing, that is Li Keqiang was the first ever real PhD in economics from the Beijing University in the party bureau. Yet that obituary ignored this fundamental personal uh, biographical piece of information. Never mentioned that he was a, a doctorate degree holder for, uh, in economics. The reason is very simple, because Xi Jinping himself has a fake doctorate in Marxist theory from Tsinghua University. So that's why the Supreme Leader should never be overshadowed by any of his subordinates. Typical Chinese uh, sort of work in and semantics. You mentioned about this uh, uh, intensive speculation about the cause of his death. It shows several things. Number one, it shows the CCP lost its credibility. No matter what the government said, a particular leader died of a certain disease, fewer and fewer really believe the CCP's official statements. This has happened many times in the past. In 1971, Mao's right-hand man, Marshal Lin Biao, uh, his defense minister, mysteriously died in a plane crash. And up to this day, <laughs> more and more people suspect that was a real reason as uh, uh, published by the, uh, by the government. And secondly, you know, during Xi's uh, um, time, Li Keqiang, the premier, was reduced to the status of a pygmy while under Xi uh, because he was kept loyal. However, Li did have a loyal following within the CCP bureaucracy, and that could be a very powerful voice of party faction opposing Xi outside of the government. That's why this could potentially be dangerous to Xi Jinping. So I don't agree with this argument that, that, that somehow foul play can be totally ruled out because Li is out of government and he poses no threat to Xi. I mean, I would argue precisely the opposite mm -hmm. because precisely he's out of government that he could be potentially an alternative to Xi in the eyes of many. 
you know, obviously it's only been a few days and you don't have a crystal ball, but thus far, have you seen um, indications uh, that the response to this death is something we should be watching closely, that um, that they're actually turmoil and tension is bubbling up among the people? Well, right now, I think there is obviously the massive uh, social uh, disenchantment, but the regime has become so much more efficient, so much more technologically capable in suppressing any sprout of a social protest. Mm -hmm. So you can see that uh, uh, there's a plain clothes uh, everywhere, you know, the possible venues, including Tiananmen Square. And so we have seen an uh, outpouring of uh, people in his hometown to, um, you know, lay flare, uh, flowers in front of his house or his, the, the, his old uh, household. So other than that, I don't think there will be any really massive protests unless something that indicated the uh, the weaknesses and the vulnerability of the regime. So far, the regime has been very ferocious. Mm. Well, for our next topic, this past week, October 26th through the 28th, China's top diplomat Wang Yi met with uh, President Biden, as well as Secretary of State Anthony Blinken and National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. This meeting uh, was, it seems, in part reciprocal for Blinken's visit in June, uh, but it also served to pave the way for Xi Jinping's expected meeting with Biden in San Francisco this November. What did you make of this meeting? Um, anything jump out at you or any of the topics discussed or any developments? I think this is a, appears to be a frontier for Xi Jinping's visit to San Francisco, actually in November, as a matter of fact. I doubt that is the only thing on the agenda. This is not going to be a major, um, this is not going to be just a business-like uh, transactional. It never was. Every time there is a chance for the Chinese leadership uh, to meet with uh, their counterpart, they always use occasions like this to obtain concessions uh, from uh, the other side, in this case, the White House. And the Chinese believe that the, the current uh, administration is weak and indecisive. In comparison with the previous one, so they thought they could really uh, do some number on the current uh, administration. However, from the White House point of view, I think they have different uh, agendas. Uh, one is they want to warn China to behave in four key areas: that is, the South China Sea, the Israel-Hamas war in the Middle East, uh, the war in Ukraine, and of course the Taiwan Strait. So that has been consistently the message the White House has been sending to China, not just the, the Democratic administration, but also Republican administration as well. Secondly, I think the, uh, the incumbent administration wants to prevent China from becoming another Iran, in other words, the sponsor of America's adversaries in the much uh, wider regions, because China is far more capable than Iran to behave that way. The White House's uh, predominant approach to this is through diplomacy negotiations that focus on persuasion and appeals. In so doing, the White House is not sufficiently aware of the fundamental reality. And that reality is that the CCP needs the United States much more than the United States needs the CCP. We have a lot more leverages in our hands as China is critically dependent on the outside world particularly the United States, for trade, for technology, and for capital investment. Also, the CCP's ultimate fear of the United States is the powerful inspirational impact of the United States upon the Chinese people. So that's why they want to have exclusive leadership-to-leadership -leadership summit among the senior leaders 
You can see this the very true because right, right now there are somewhere more than three hundred thousand Chinese students studying in the United States, but fewer than four hundred, fewer than four hundred Americans uh, studying inside China because everyone by Chinese law is uh, a suspect of some kind of foreign spy. So China does not want Americans to influence its, its people there. They only want Americans' money, American technology, and Americans' uh, investment, that kind of thing. I think there's something that's very, very um, promising and, and good coming out of the summit. That is, uh, the White House emphasized the importance of people-to-people -people relations. And this is very critical. Precisely because of what I said about Americans' inspirational impact on America, on, on Chinese people. So I always say this, and I'm going to say this again here. The U.S.-China relationship should never be just bilateral between the American leadership, democratically elected leadership, and the Chinese Communist Party elite who were never elected by the Chinese people. Americans' relationship with China should always be trilateral rather than bilateral. should be between the United States and Chinese Chinese Communist government, and also between the United States and the Chinese people. And I think that the, uh, the this administration is doing an admirable job, and M Ambassador Nicholas Burns, I think, is doing his best, reaching out to the Chinese society, in addition to his official duty as ambassador to dealing with the um, uh, Chinese elite. For our last topic, uh, we recently saw another clash between the Philippines and China over maritime territorial claims in the South China Sea and fishing rights. We didn't get a chance to discuss this last week, but Sunday the 22nd, there was a collision between two ships as uh, the Chinese Coast Guard attempted to block a Philippine ship en route to resupply troops stationed on another old uh, World War II era ship, which is used as an outpost on the Second Thomas Shoal. So obviously, you know, Miles, the permanent court of arbitration has ruled in 2016 that China's claims in these waters have no legal basis. They continue to claim sovereignty over almost the entire South China Sea. And this isn't the first time the Philippines and China have clashed in this way. Could you tell us a bit more about this particular incident, uh, the history of these tensions, and, and I guess just where you see this going? Well, China normally did not have this kind of historical claim until the modern times, somewhere around seven, eight decades ago. China's uh, major claim for sovereignty is ridiculous. I mean, you mentioned that the the, uh, the International Permanent Court Arbitration rule in 2016, using history to justify its sovereign claim, is uh, lawless. If this logic would prevail, I can even say that you know Italy could claim sovereignty over China because Marco Polo went there over a thousand years ago, or close to a thousand years ago. This is uh, not going to be a uh, very persuasive. China's problem with the Philippines germinates from many sources, but one of the most important ones is because Philippines is the treaty ally of the United States. China's ultimate goal is to chase the United States' Americans' influence outside of Western Pacific. And in the eyes of international law, areas such as South China Sea, it belongs to international commons, so it's international water. So nobody could really claim exclusive right on sovereignty already. Uh, China doesn't really um, care about those kind of things. Another thing is uh, the escalation of the tension between the Philippines and China recently has a lot to do with the Philippine government's uh, decision to allow United States, its treaty ally, to use bases close to Taiwan for the Taiwan scenario. Mm -hmm. That will pose significant obstacle to China's ambition military ambition on Taiwan. 
on a deeper level, China is angry uh, with the Philippines because the uh, Philippines refuses to bow to Beijing 100%. China always regards its neighbor countries as the little countries who should not dare to challenge the hegemony and supremacy of the Middle Kingdom. In that regard, you can also see the pattern that China is particularly harsh and hostile against American treaty allies in the region. That would include Japan, South Korea, and the Philippines, because they're all very fearful of more countries uh, like the uh, the three treaty allies join this alliance. That's why China really, really spent a lot of political capital and economic capital too to woo countries like Vietnam and Thailand um, and to uh, to turn them to prevent them from becoming another treaty ally of the United States, like the Philippines, South Korea, and Japan. So we saw a condemnation of the PRC's behavior in this instance from the U.S. State Department, uh, calling the activity dangerous and unlawful harassment. Is this a satisfying response, uh, in your personal opinion, Miles? And, and if not, um, what would it take to actually deter China from acting so aggressively towards its neighbors in instances like this? Well, first of all, we should intensify our effort to make sure that uh, international commons remain international. So China should never have this monopoly and uh, sovereign claim over those international waters because it's against international law. So uh, secondly, because it's international, therefore United States should not just act alone. We should have our friends and allies to have joint patrol of this area. Uh, China has been very, very hostile. You can see last week, while well, Wang Yi uh, is uh, in Washington, the United States uh, government releases uh, uh, footages of Chinese fighter jets doing really uh, terrible things, uh, uh, having a road rage, came very close to Americans' uh, uh, military aircraft, conducting official and uh, legal operations in the region. And they did the same thing to the Canadian uh, military forces as well. So you can see we have to be very strong, uh, never yielding the Chinese uh, uh, threat. And secondly, we have to be uh, multilateral in this uh, common defense of international commons. Well, Miles, I think that's all the time we have this week. Uh, thanks so much for talking to me again. I look forward to doing this again next week. Thank you very much. See you next week. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of China Insider. For Chinese language listeners, be sure to check out our monthly Chinese language episodes. And for those who prefer written analysis, subscribe to our weekly newsletter, China Digest, the best place to stay up to date on Miles' analysis and the latest news on China. As always, you can stay up to date on the China Center's activities at Hudson.org. 